Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Marty Smith America podcast. This is volume 100-something. Uh, and, man, it's an awesome one today. We just completed the interview with Brett Young, tremendous talent in Nashville, Tennessee, who's had unbelievable commercial success in his career in the country music format. That is the smallest fraction of who this man is. Uh, decorated former professional baseball prospect, and we get into that whole path and why it ended and how it started and, and all the unique stops and map dots on his path in baseball and how that ultimately led to so much success in Nashville, Tennessee, and in country music, not only as an artist, but as a songwriter, which, as you guys know, means so much to me. Before we get to Brett, we're going to do Ask Marty. Got some awesome questions this week. Before we get to Ask Marty, I want to remind you guys that the Dan Lebetard Show with Stu Gotts is the bomb. They're now on ESPN Radio and ESPN News from 10 to 12 Eastern Time. But they're putting out original digital content before and after every show. Download and subscribe to the Dan Levitard Show with Stu Gotts, along with Marty Smith's America. Travis, real quick, before we get to ask Marty, I actually called in and asked Ron so, McGill a question. This, this is where I wanted to start because so I got on yesterday to your account and tweeted out, you know, get your questions. And I had one question. Somebody tweeted a question that I was just utterly confused about and then i was informed this morning that you went on there and i now understand why somebody asked about your dog and ghost so can you please enlighten me because i have no idea a few nights a week laney and i will be either in our kitchen or in our living room area and or even on our porch out back staring at the lake and sadie our seven-month-old multi-poo puppy will just lose her mind. I mean, out of nowhere, just jump up and lose her ever-loving mind barking at the corner of the room. Nothing's there. I mean, there's nothing moving. There's no odd objects. She's just losing her mind. So Lainey and I have started to look at one another and wonder who's visiting us. And as I'm driving up the highway on Tuesday, Coming home, I had an Academy Sports and Outdoors shoot Monday in Columbus, Georgia, on the Chattahoochee River. And I'm driving home from the shoot Tuesday morning, and the, I'm listening to Dan and Stu and Mike uh, and, and the boys on ESPN Radio. They have on Ron McGill. And I'm like, I text Mike Ryan. I'm like, dude, I have a question. Every now and then, a couple times a week, our puppy will lose her ever-loving mind at nothing. Can my dog see ghosts? And my, immediately the phone rings. It's Mike. He goes, you have to ask Ron McGill this question on air. I'm like, hell yeah, let's go. Fired up. So on I go. And I got ready to do, they were doing some sort of bit about like the Godfather or some show where people called in and did... They were, they were doing the limited fake impersonations from Scarface. Scarface, that's it. Yes, 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 yes. So I was, I was going to do some sort of Southern Scarface, but I'm still trying to live down the Bill France story on the Levitard show. So. Yeah, you have to tread lightly. Yep, I chose against going down that path. And so I call in and I ask Ron McGill, Ron, 
Can my dog see ghosts? You know, I'm not going to say no. I'm not going to say no because I never, used to be- I, I never used to believe in ghosts until I had a certain incident that happened to me a while back, and now I firmly believe in ghosts. Wait, wait, so, wait, 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 wait. Time out. Wait, 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 wait. Everyone slow down. Hold on a minute. Y'all, that's nothing. Okay? That's just the precursor to Ron telling the story about why he thinks my dog might be seeing ghosts. Y'all, this is the craziest ghost story I've ever heard. Y'all listen to this. Ron McGill, uh, please tell us the story of why it is that there might be ghosts. Well, several years ago, I was invited to be a guest lecturer at this meeting that they were having between some doctors up in North Carolina. So I get up there. My plane didn't land until like 1130 at night. Uh, I, I get picked up, this beautiful black limo. This driver comes in dressed in a black suit, picks me up, and we start driving. And I mean, we're driving for quite a while. And then we get into this up to this mountain area. There's no lights, nothing. All I see is this, like, this wall of like all these stones and stuff. And then we get to this long driveway with this wrought iron gate, and we drive up to this. It looks like an old manor at the end of the driveway. I go, oh, okay, interesting. You know, the guy's not saying, the, the driver's not telling me anything. We get there. This guy comes out dressed like in a, in a formal black suit with a bow tie, but he's like a really old guy, and the suit looks like it came out of a closet from 20 years ago. He goes, welcome to whatever manner it was, and I go to check in, and then there's one old lady behind the desk, and I check in, and I, there's not another soul around, Dan. This is a huge, like, manner type thing. Like Hold on, old, Ron. Uh, Ron, it just sounds like you're describing Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, this show is a movie. Right now. Did like, you take acid and watch Rocky but Horror Dan, Picture but Show? Dan, but, Dan, I swear over my kids, I'm not exaggerating one thing here, okay? This is exactly what it was like. So I go in, I check in, and she gives me a key. She goes, it's upstairs. And I go upstairs, I, I, I go up the staircase, and the hallway looks just like the shiny. It's that hallway all the way down with nothing but, like, pictures and mirrors of these old people on the side. And there's not another soul in the place. I go into the room, and it's just, each room is different. Obviously, these were bedrooms before. There's a fireplace going in the room. I load it on my back, and I'm putting on the TV. It's Monday Night Football, okay? So at the end of Monday Night Football, I'm getting to see something. I'm watching it, and all of a sudden, I hear, <laughs> Like a little kid laughing. And I'm going, what the hell is that? I turn down the TV and I don't hear anything. Turn off the TV and I hear, I turn off the TV. I listen, I listen, and I hear it again. I swear like a little kid is is kind of like, what the hell is that? I I call my wife, but I can't call her because I get no reception in the room. As soon as I stick the phone out the window, I get reception. So I call, I said, there's something freaky happening here. You know, I don't believe in this this garbage, but I'm, so I start walking around the house. I'm looking for somebody and there's nobody around. There's nobody behind the desk. There's nobody there. Everybody's disappeared. And I'm walking around the house and I go downstairs and there's a, there's a pool. Okay. There's a pool, um, indoor pool. And I go down and I see this indoor pool and and I'm walking around, and all of a sudden, I, I see the water moving like someone is swimming in the water, but there's nobody there. And I said, well, you know, that's, that's got to be the pumps. It's got to be the filters. And I'm looking for something around the pool that's, that's doing that in the water. There's nothing there. So as I start to walk towards the end of the pool to get out of the room, I hear drip, 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 and I turn around. I'm like, Dan, I, I, I swear to you, I'm not making this up. All of a sudden, there's like a little trail of water like somebody got out of the pool, okay, going right into the wall, going right into the wall. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. So I, I, I get out of there. I go, I'm looking for somebody. There is nobody around. There's nobody in that. I'm the only person checked into this huge mansion. I go walking down the hall, and I start taking pictures of my phone. I, say, I feel like somebody's watching me. I, and I don't get like this, Dan. I'm not, I'm not this type of guy who believes in this garbage. But I really feel like someone's watching. So I'm taking pictures and taking pictures. And, you know, they got this old furniture from when this estate, I guess, was first built 100 years ago, whatever. Like, there's this old chair there that says, you know, please do not sit. Blah, blah, blah. But I take a picture of it. I get back to the room. I look at the picture, Dan, and there is a silhouette of a woman sitting in this no! room. No! No! I swear to you! This is horrifying! 
no, this is no, this is beyond horrifying, okay? Because then I go in and uh, I go into my room, I call my wife, and I go, honey, I'm going to send you this picture. Look at this picture. And she goes, oh, my God, get out of there. Yeah, I go, honey, I cannot get out of here. There's, there's nobody here. I can't contact anybody. I'm calling the phone. Nobody answers the phone. Nothing. Okay? I'm, like, totally freaking out. So I sit down, I put the television louder, and I keep hearing. <laughs> and then I hear this. I hear. Oh, no. I'm not making this up, Oh, my man. God. No, that's scary. Up, okay? That's scary. It was freaky. I was freaky. So I'm looking around. So the next morning. I didn't sleep a bit. I would, I'm just waiting for the sun to rise. I'm sitting in the bed with like my knees up to my freaking chest like a little baby. I'm thinking, what? I, can't, I can't get out of here. I can't call anybody. I don't have any number to call anything. I can't get a hold of anybody. The next morning I wake up and I start going down outside so I can get connection on my phone to find out about this place. This place was originally a man of a very famous woman. Okay. And, and, okay. and a kid was murdered. A kid was murdered in that room that I was in. Okay, and it was then that that the state was turned over to Duke University, where it became a psychiatric ward, where they did lobotomies in that building. Oh my End of story. God. Oh my yes, God. Exactly. I don't know if that story was The Shining. I don't know if it was Bram Stoker's Dracula. I think he took elements of a lot of different stories, but that sounded horrifying and real. It could have been the shrooms. I, I it could have been anything, but I was legitimately scared, and I saw on Greg Cody's face just the horror. I feel like we can all say that we now believe in ghosts. That story got me, y'all. I ain't kidding. I was driving up the highway in nowhere, Georgia, and I had chills listening to him tell that story. It legit freaked me out. And are of course, s- it took place in North Carolina. Are you somebody that before yesterday like believed in ghosts? Man, I don't know if I believe in ghosts or not. I, I definitely believe in the spiritual aspect that they're with me. For example, I lost my mom young. Everybody knows that. But my entire life, before my mom passed away, she loved red birds. She loved robins. She loved cardinals. And always mentioned them. We always had a bird feeder out back so that she could see them come eat. The whole thing. Well, I see red birds all the time now. And any time that I see a red bird, I say, hey, mama, every time. It's my mom coming to say hello. I know that. I know that in my heart. And, in fact, it's so cool. My youngest child, Vivian, she is really aware of that aspect of the way that I view seeing a red bird. And so she's real in tune to that, and she's drawn me pictures of red birds and all those things. It's just the cutest thing ever. So – Do I believe in ghosts? I don't know if I do or not, but um, I definitely believe in spirits. So I guess that's the same thing. Is that the same thing? I I get it. It's it's kind of like related, but not the same. It's like a nice spirit. Yeah, like ghosts. It's a nice feeling. Ghosts you think like has like a bad connotation to it, or like a cardinal is a a symbol of something that is good. Right. She's coming to visit. So that was – Anyway, Ron's story was crazy, and that whole thing about whether or not my dog can see ghosts is crazy. Uh, but, yeah, so there you go. Um, that was my Tuesday morning. Our first official question then comes from at Capelgate one What is your favorite NASCAR trophy? My favorite NASCAR trophy is far and away undisputed world champion Pocono, Pennsylvania, because they have a bald eagle as their race-winning trophy. There's a triangle, which the thing about Pocono that makes it so unique is it's a triangular-shaped racetrack, two and a half miles long, three very different types of corners, 
and it's they call it the quote tricky triangle. So they have like the silhouette of Pocono Raceway with an American flag motif inside the racetrack. And then there's a bald eagle, huge bald eagle over top of the motif of the racetrack, almost like clutching it in its talons, as it were. And so it don't get me no more America than that. So I love the Pocono Trophy so much. This person, their guess, and I want to know where you rank this trophy at, their guess was going to be the grandfather clock at Martinsville. Where do you put that one? Uh, way up there. Uh, it's way up there. I love the, the – the, and, it's again, it's such a unique tradition. Started by H. Clay Earls, the founder of the racetrack many moons ago from a company that made those clocks in Martinsville. Yes, I do love that. I also love Bristol now gives out a, a huge sword because they call it the Coliseum, the last great Coliseum at Bristol. I would say that, that the vast majority of drivers would probably, would probably say the Martinsville clock. That's a great call. For someone that has multiple, what, like, do you give one of the clocks to like a loved one or do you just like outfit your entire house with just grandfather clocks? I mean, I can't know? imagine. Uh, I can't imagine some of these guys like Jimmy Johnson or Denny Hamlin or Jeff Gordon who have a bunch of them. I mean, they're, honestly, they're probably in storage. I mean, you can't – the things are huge. That's what, like, I, I would, like, if you, like, give it to a sibling or a parent or, you know, because – Crew chief probably yeah. get – crew chief probably has one in his house. Team owner probably has one in his house. Yeah. Uh, I might have if, – if I were that successful at Martinsville, I would probably have one on at least the – depending on how big your house is. Like, if you have a multi-floor house – yeah. I would have one on every floor. Why not? You, ha- you have to have one in your man cave or just the stunt. Maybe just put it in, like, at your, the garage where your, your car is. Like, let people, like, some people come in. But I would outfit it. I'd make it look as cool as possible. Um, I, I'm gonna, I mean, I'm they're gonna beautiful add... clocks. Jimmy Johnson has won at Martinsville Speedway nine times. Okay, so can I give you – you give me homework usually. I want uh, – This dude has nine grandfather clocks. Yeah, so you have homework now. Uh, we need to know what he has done with these. I will get that answer. I will get that answer. Let me see if I can get that answer right now. Why, not, why don't we just try to see if we can – I'm going to try to FaceTime him. We'll see if I can get that answer right now on Marty Smith's America – where all of his grandfather clocks are. Let's see if he answers. I don't even know if I'm calling the right number because his number didn't show up. It was like a, his email or something. Okay, it says FaceTime unavailable there. Let me try his number number just to be sure that it's the right deal, Jimmy Johnson. All right, I don't know if it's the same one or not. Hopefully it's not the same number so that I'm not wearing him completely out. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a, let's see, it's morning time where Johnson is. So he may be out on his bike somewhere. That's probably where he is. Okay. Johnson, Johnson, uh, screen, call screen to me. He didn't answer. That's okay. I will get the answer to where all of Jimmy Johnson's nine Martinsville Speedway grandfather clocks are located. That is insane to me. That's unreal. 
And side note, I'm hoping he finds a way to sneak into the playoffs. He's right there. He has won nine races at Martinsville in 37 starts. He's won one-fourth of the starts he's ever made at that racetrack. And it's one of the most technically difficult racetracks there is on the tour. So, I mean, goodness. Um, okay, very good. Yeah, good call on Martinsville Speedway, the grandfather clock, uh, and I love the Pocono Eagle as well. What's next? Uh, from Mark Router, uh, pronunciation probably wrong. What would your walk-up song be? Speaking of baseball, with Brett what Young. would my walk-up song be? Uh, that I think about that every now and then. Uh, that might be weird, but I do think about that every now and then. I really think I keep going back to "How About You" by Eric Church. I think that "How About You" would probably be my walk-up song. Uh, it just says everything that I'm thinking. It says it says the way I live my life. It says the. It's it's very special song to me. Y'all know how special that entire record is to me, and and what a great friend Eric is to me. And so I'm going with "How about you, Eric Church?" I was about to recite lyrics, but I don't know if we can afford to recite lyrics. I think if you if you read them without singing them, I is that how it works? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think so. And if they try to sue us, can we have Eric as a well, I mean, yeah, I guess if you know the writers and, and whatnot, that's who would sue you. The publishing company would probably be who sues you. But then we can go to court and we can, if Eric was our witness. And since, I mean, to, I, I don't know exactly how, all the minutiae and nuance of. And you were just reading. What, but you were I just know reading Eric up. wrote the song, so he probably owns the publishing on the song. And I mean, they'll come after Brett Young for saying Jason Aldean's lyrics then too. So I think we're good to re at least read the lyrics. I say this time, we, we leave that conundrum to Brett Young and we'll get clarity. I'll, I'll ask Eric if I can read his lyrics and then yeah, we'll, we'll do that later. We'll let Brett take the hit if anybody's going right. to get it. He's got a little more clout than we do. Just Brett knows some little. people. Yeah. Mine, so I think, what would your walk-up song be? Uh, I'm going to change it. I'm going with Hang On Sloopy. And why Hang On Sloopy? Because it's – because it's an Ohio State song? Yep, it's an Ohio State song. I was going to go with Hell's Bells because when that bell hits, that's a good one. Or I would do Thunderstruck just so maybe I can entice the people at the game to just start chugging their beers because that's a uh, game. So that's Ask Marty this week. We appreciate all you guys and your amazing questions. I know Travis really gets great enjoyment out of filtering through those. I can't imagine the ones that he did not use. Please keep them coming every single week. We love getting them. And I, I feel sure there must have been enough where you filed a couple away for later, right? Yeah, there's always a, there's always a few. I, I always screen grab them, and I have a couple uh, on my phone that we can use at any point. Just depending on how long we go and stuff like that, I mean, it might be in one question. It might be four questions each week. Who knows? But just keep them coming. And I, I'm, ch I'm checking often, so they're, they're being seen. That's cool. One was brought to my attention. It wasn't a question. It was just a comment from a, a young man named Dakota Bonds, who uh, is from my hometown. He's from Parisburg, Virginia, and he always wanted to work in NASCAR racing, and now he's getting the opportunity to, to do some work in NASCAR. And he just wrote, hey, man, no question. I just want you to know that, that you've inspired me my whole life. And so, D Dakota, thanks so much for taking the time. I did write him back which I'm not – I just don't do it a lot. I'm sorry, guys. 
uh, for my own mental health. I try to stay away from it, but I, I'm, I want you to know how appreciative we are. People are seeing what you're sending us and, and I see it too. I see it every Saturday morning when we're doing Marty and McGee, I'm on there for three straight hours and I scroll through there and I see a lot of it. Thank you to everybody who writes us kind things on social media. And, and even those of you guys who get frustrated with us about things, if you think that, that, that you're tired of this or don't like that and you're writing us, it gets seen just not by me. So, uh, keep on digging. Uh, good luck. Uh, all right. That's it for ask Marty. Uh, we appreciate y'all sending in your, your stuff and keep on coming with it. Cause we love, we love, it's a very popular segment. We've seen that and we appreciate you guys taking the time to send your questions or, or comments. Now that we've gone through all that drivel, uh, this is good. This is a really good interview. Y'all, uh, Brett Young, who has uh, five or six, I think, platinum singles now uh, in the country radio format uh, by RIAA, which is kind of the, the group that determines such things. They calculate all the scans and whatever else to determine the success of albums and singles. And a lot of you guys may not know a whole lot about Brett. You probably know the song in case you didn't know. It was a monster. It's still a monster. I think it's five times platinum right now, which is just crazy. That's a lot of sales. And God, I mean, heaven knows how many streams on Spotify or Apple Music or whatnot. Probably, it's probably the wedding song of 2018, 19. So his path is amazing. Uh, there's a lot of artists who think they could be athletes, and there's certainly a lot of athletes who think they can be artists across all genres, and Brett actually did it. And I can't wait for you guys to hear this. So we won't wait anymore. Here is country music star Brett Young on Marty Smith's America. I want to start with the fact that I had forgotten this because of just the hustle and bustle of life, but you and I actually threw out co-first pitches together last fall you may not remember this at the florida georgia football weekend extravaganza in jacksonville the, the largest cocktail party which we're not allowed to say that anymore but we do it anyway i'm pretty sure they wanted tim tebow but he said no so they were like all right get that other guy so then they've asked me to do it and realize, wait a minute, the guy playing a concert after this game actually was a very highly touted professional prospect. So let's have him throw out a pitch too. Um, <laughs> I don't know that I've ever felt so insignificant, Brett, but at least I was able to throw a strike. So there is that. Uh, I remember that. I think they told me a half hour beforehand. It felt like a good idea for me to try to put a little heat behind it. And uh, my arm was hanging for about a week after that. So was mine. I got, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a little too proud. I think I was like, man, I'm throwing this day. I'm throwing this thing from the rubber. I'm not doing this grass in front of the mound crap. I'm going to get up on the rubber and I'm going to throw some cheese. I mean, it was about a 90, 95% of everything I had. And I'm pretty sure it was about a 56 mile an hour heater straight <laughs> down the middle. At least I didn't throw it in the dirt. That's the number one goal with first pitches in my mind. No, I a hundred percent agree with that. I'd ra I'd rather, I'd rather sky one over the catcher's head into the backstop than, than short hop some poor guy before he's got to play a game. 
Well, for the folks listening, uh, I'm not kidding when I say that Brett was a highly touted professional prospect as a pitcher. And I wonder, let's start there. At, at what age did you realize that you had legitimate baseball talent? You know, my dad was one of those dads that kind of just put a baseball in my hand before, you know, it, it was reasonable for me to do anything with it. So I, uh, I grew up playing my whole life, you know. I don't think I really was interested in pitching, though. Um, in Little League and stuff, I was, I was a little home run hitter, so I played first base. I think I probably saved my arm. You know, I ended up getting an injury later on, but I think because I didn't pitch until later, my arm was probably able to be healthy through all those innings in high school. But we just needed a pitcher about junior high age for one game because it was a little tournament and we had run out of innings and I got out there and nobody could hit me because I threw a little harder than everyone else. And so it was kind of not my decision after that. <laughs> you know, once, once your coach realizes that you're putting up zeros, uh, they're going to keep putting you back out there. So I th I'd say I was like 13 when I started pitching on a regular rotation. I got to be honest, for a game that kind of always used to move too slow for me, the kind of the feeling of power and being control in control when you're holding the ball, I think that's what I started to fall in love with, which is, which is probably not the reason to do it, but that's what, why it worked for me. Doesn't matter why, right? It matters that. Uh, exactly right. What was your go-to? Were you a straight gas guy? What was your go-to pitch? Uh, you know, in so my high school team, my senior year, we were 28 and one. Whoa. And, uh, and we were a little Christian school uh, in Costa Mesa, California, uh, and we were ranked 17th in the country. And my senior year, I still only had two pitches. I was fastball, uh, thrown in the low 90s, and I had a 12-6 curveball. I probably should have taught myself some sort of change-up or split finger in high school because when I got to college, I was definitely short a pitch. But in high school, it was, yeah, it was, you know, the fastball in the low 90s was enough, and the curveball was just enough to keep them off, uh, off, off balance. So you mentioned you're from, from Costa Mesa. Uh, how's the guy from Costa Mesa end up at Ole Miss? Why, why did you choose Ole Miss, and why did you leave Ole Miss? you're limited to five official visits when you're looking at colleges. And uh, I wanted to at least take one visit kind of outside my bubble or my comfort zone. And at the time we had interest from Ole Miss and, and I, you know, obviously SEC sports, not just baseball, all SEC sports, you know, have the reputation they have for a reason. And so I was, I was very interested, didn't know much about the school itself, but I took a visit and uh, my recruiter, the student athlete that they put me with to kind of show me around just, did the best job. I mean, it's not hard to sell Oxford in the Grove, nope. um, but I think I saw everything that, that that town had to offer in about in about 36 hours. <laughs> and, uh, That's a lot, yeah. Brett. I know, I know. And, and honestly, the, the, I've never seen that many pretty girls walking around. And so it was the baseball field had just won, I think it was the year before the baseball field had won the Barclay Award. So it was in like pristine shape. And uh, I just, I mean, they just did a great, a great sell job on it. And, uh, and to be honest, I wish I hadn't left. I, I left because I was homesick. I grew up at the beach. I don't care what anybody says. Driving down to Biloxi is not the same as surfing in Newport Beach. So um, I just I got homesick and I wasn't enjoying the coaching staff very much. Uh, I love them as people, but I just had I known that they were going to make a complete change from the top down in the coaching staff over the summer, that may have kept me there. But there were a lot of factors, and, and, and that's, that's one of my, you know, regret is something I don't do often, but that's one of my few regrets in life is that I didn't stick it out there. So in preparing for this interview, 
I looked up attendance at the dude in Starkville, Mississippi, and I noticed that the 10th largest on-campus crowd in college baseball history occurred on my 24th birthday, April 15th, 2000. By my math, you were on the Ole Miss Rebels and probably there that day. Do you uh, remember that day? And if so, what do you remember? Because that place is different, man. So we, we were there. I 100% remember that day. And I'll tell you why. Because I started that game. No way you did not. Oh, did my not, gosh. That's killer. I did not get out of the first inning. <laughs> oh, no. I it spent, didn't go too well, huh? Well, no. So here's the thing. I went. This is, this, is, this is part of what I was talking about when I said I – so as a freshman at Ole Miss, by the time we started conference, I had earned the number – I was a Saturday starter. Mm -hmm. By the time we started conference, I was our number two guy. And I won my first two starts, and I was up 13-1 to one in my third start, and they pulled me, and we ended up losing that game. So I'm 2-0 and oh with a no decision. And I go into the game against Mississippi State, and I went uh, base hit, hit batter, walk. And so I got the bases loaded, no outs, but no runs yet. And he, he pulled me with three runners on. Didn't give me a chance to get out of my first what, inning. Next what explanation in. were you given for that decision? I was not given one. I was, I was told that it was because they wanted to use me on Sunday if they had to. So they put, me in, they put me in the bullpen for the rest of the weekend. But I didn't start another game the rest of the year. So it was, it was something fishy going on. But I'll never forget that crowd because Sunday they did – send me out to the bullpen to get loose. Uh, and, uh, and that – I've never seen baseball fans party harder than, than they do there in Starkville. And they were loving me because I was the guy that just gave them three free runs in the first inning. So they were handing me barbecue. I think I ate ribs and a hot dog from, from a fan uh, <laughs> in, the, in the bullpen on Sunday. Honest to God, I had no idea you started that day. And it's very interesting to me how it seems like just, – just an inference here, but – that might have even begin the, been the beginning of the end for you in Oxford. Sounds yeah, like. Yeah, it, it was. It was. It, I didn't just not start a game after that. It was, it was like a relief inning here and there. There would be weekends where I didn't even get, get out of the bullpen. So it, was, it didn't make sense to me. I didn't get an explanation for it. it just put a, it put a bit bad taste in my mouth. Quickly, for those who don't know, and, and we have, we're blessed, we have listeners all over the place. Describe SEC baseball. It's not like a lot of college baseball. It's about three times the crowd um, of a normal college baseball game, period. In terms of the teams in the conference, you, you're, they're going to end up recruiting some of the best players in the country. So in terms of competition, it's probably the most competitive. I mean, I, it, that's usually refle reflected in the College World Series, so I'll stand behind that statement. They almost come to a college baseball game like it's a college football game. They, the fans come to party. You know, when I was at Ole Miss, they didn't have the beer garden in right field yet. But now it's like every time you hit a home run, people are pouring beers on their each other's heads, you know. <laughs> so it's just like it's a, it's a big party. And I, I can understand why, because with college football, you get to do that once a week. Mm -hmm. In college baseball, it's a three-game series every weekend. So <laughs> they, treat, they treat it like their own three-day frat party and pretty much is what it is. And it's fun. It's a, it's a fun environment. But it's also, I think, for players, it can be a little distracting as well. So you hopped around a little bit after you left Oxford. Yeah, I know you went to JUCO, I think, for a year, and then you went to Fresno. Why, why Fresno? Uh, yeah, I even had – I was at one school before the JUCO. Um, I wanted to play – I played basketball all through high school, and, and I wanted to play ball one more year if I could. So I, uh, 
I went to a little NAIA school in San Diego called Point Loma, and I, I got a split baseball basketball scholarship there. I went through like a, a little bit of a health thing where uh, I couldn't keep on weight and I didn't have an appetite. Before we could figure out what it was, I just, I, I kind of freaked out and left. So I didn't use up a year of eligibility. It turned out to be just anxiety about wow. trying to play two sports and having difficult classes and stuff. And it's something I had never dealt with before and haven't dealt with since. But so I left there and it, it, that was good because it allowed me to have a year of eligibility to go to that little junior college in Irvine, Irvine Valley Junior College. And, uh, and get innings again and start getting my arm healthy. And, you know, I, I think at that point I was considered a flight risk because we're talking about three <laughs> schools in three years. So there weren't offers flooding in. In fact, the only interest I had was the new pitching coach from Ole Miss was talking to me again. So there was a, I, I, I probably could have gone back to Ole Miss, but uh, my best friend from high school was the second string punter at Fresno State. And I said, you know what? I think because I've been jumping around so much, I need to go somewhere where I can live with a buddy and like my private and personal life will make enough sense to me. I can focus on school, focus on baseball. And so I went there and uh, I got to be honest, I loved Fresno State. I stayed for three years after I hurt my arm. It was a great, great program, great school. Mike Batesel had just come over from Northridge and he brought Tim Montez, who was actually a pitching coach at Arkansas in the SEC. Tim came in, got my velocity up. I was like, I was like living in the mid nineties. He taught me a slider that was coming in high eighties, low nineties. It was primed to be a really big junior year for me. It just didn't end up working out that way. <laughs> how, how did you injure your elbow? Was it like a Tommy John deal? What happened? Yeah, I had Tommy John. So October, obviously preseason baseball, we got uh, to the place where we were doing our, like our inner squad games, you know, towards the end of preseason, you, mm -hmm. you bring the fans out, you let them, you know, watch you play against your own teammates and stuff. And uh, the week before that, I threw a slider uh, in the bullpen and I felt like a twinge in my elbow. And so we went and we MRI'd it and uh, they cleared me, but they put, they put me like uh, on the DL for like, I think six weeks, which was fine. I'd be ready for season. So I went through a bunch of rehab and, uh, and got like the stuff they put you through. If they don't do that surgery for rehab base, I basically look like Popeye on my, on my right forearm, you know, they'll put a hundred pennies at the bottom of a rice bucket and have you dig them out one at a time, things like that. And so I got healthy. I was feeling good. Velocity was back up instead of throwing my, uh, my bullpen that week, we had a Tuesday game back in Irvine at, uh, the university there in Irvine. UC uh, Irvine? Yeah, UC Irvine. That's the one. So I just, instead of throwing my bullpen, I threw one inning and I threw 10 pitches, three strikeouts. You know, we're, it's, it's, it's going to be a great year. And uh, we had uh, Cal State Fullerton that Friday night. It was our home opener. They were preseason ranked in the top 10, I think number three. And they had the number one uh, pitching prospect in the country. His name was Wes Littleton. The scouts weren't there to see me. They were there to see Wes. But nonetheless, I had a, a, at least a guy from every ball club uh, behind home plate. So I was super excited for that, that game. And I, I, my arm felt really good. I was, I was in my bullpen. I was living mid-90s. And uh, I was working hitters, working three hitters right before game start. And a uh, second hitter, I threw a slider. And I felt it again. So I just kind of put my head down and called for a fastball to test it out and that that fastball bounced twice on its way to home plate. And it was, that was that. So um, 
I went and saw uh, Dr. Elitrash at Curlin Job in LA, and he looked at the MRI from the October before and said I needed the surgery then. So oh. somebody missed it, and it should have gotten done. But because we waited till when we did, I missed both my junior and senior season. There's so many different directions I can take this interview right now, but one of them is so many artists think that they can be athletes, and so many athletes think that they can be artists in all genres, right? <laughs> Dude, you actually were able to do both. And, and that's just where my mind is. I want to get there in a minute. But before that, you were drafted or had tremendous draft interest from Tampa and the Twins, right? I don't know exactly how it works because I know when you're a college player and you're draft eligible, they're not allowed to, like, talk money and draft position with you before the draft. That's against the rules. But apparently when you're in high school, they're allowed to, like, kind of heat check your interest and so I, there were two phone calls. One was the Twins and one was the Devil Rays. Both of them were talking same round and similar money. And just neither offer seemed like it was enough to uh, give up a full ride to go get a degree. What were your major league aspirations? It's the same reason I'm in music now. I think my goal uh, for, for as long as I can remember, or at least since I've been an adult, is to do something that I love that doesn't require me to sit behind a desk with baseball, you know, it, obviously a sport that I love. And if I can, if I can make a living doing something that I love that much, you know, I'm, I've never been the guy that and this drove my dad crazy growing up, but I've never been the guy that if, if I went out and lost a game, I'm not like reeling over that loss for the next couple of days. In fact, once that game's over, I'm wondering where we're going to get pizza like that. It, it, I just leave, <laughs> you know, I just leave it. I leave it where it was and I go get the next one, you know? And so like, it, that doesn't mean I'm not competitive. I'm extremely competitive, but in terms of my goals, it, you know, with major league baseball, which we thought, you know, I thought was going to be my future up until I was 22 years old and, and it got taken away, but I, it would have just been to have a long enough career to, to set myself up to, to support, you know, my, not my own life, but my, like have a family as well do that while doing something that I loved doing because not everybody gets to do that. How did that elbow injury and the revelation that it may never be the same impact you mentally and emotionally? It was crazy. For somebody that never took the sport too seriously, it was always about fun. It was always because I loved it. Um, it, was, it was wild how, how much uh, depression kind of leaked in because it was a realization that and, – and by the way, when I had the surgery – we thought it was going to be a 12-month recovery and I'd be back to play my senior year. But it was when I developed like tendonitis in the elbow during recovery from the surgery, we realized I wasn't going to be throwing senior year either. That's when, that's when it sunk in. That's when I, I knew light bulb went off in my head. I said, I am not going to go try to walk on to some pro club. Like if, if, I'm, not, if I'm not getting drafted because of a season I had in college, I'm hanging this up. And I knew I was. And that was when it was, you know, this, this strange – like, uh, you know, depression where it was, you know, you know, all the bad decisions in life where, you know, every meal is fast food and you stop working out because you don't have to anymore. And, uh, but, you know, that led me to music. Music was kind of, music ended up being the thing that was healing for me through all of that. And so I started, I hadn't played my guitar in, you know, a couple years, still sitting in my parents' house in Orange County. I took it back up to school and got, I just got super fat and out of shape. But I was playing guitar, so, you know, there was a light at the end of the tunnel. But it was a really, really strange time. Uh, you're leading me right to the next thought I have. If, if you don't suffer that injury, are you successful in Nashville right now? 
if baseball went to the next level for me, this doesn't happen. And, and people love the question, you know, do you ever wish that you hadn't been injured and that you, you did get a chance to play Major League Baseball? And I used to say yes, but the more I think about it, because, you know, it's because of the question you just asked. If, if I got that chance, I might not be doing what I'm doing now. And if I had to pick between the two, as much as I loved baseball, um, I love music more. And it would have never happened if, if, if that injury didn't happen. And so it's one of my favorite quotes, and I overuse it, but I don't care, um, is that if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny, man. I, I, I didn't have your talent. I, I didn't have the exact same story. Certainly wouldn't, was nowhere close to any interest whatsoever. Uh, but I was a college ball player, and I chose to – to switch schools, and I knew I was going to play at the, the other school. I jumped from D2 to D1, and uh, I was asked to try out for the D1 team rather than just getting a, a roster spot, and they told me I wasn't good enough to play there. And it was one of the most difficult moments I've had, certainly in my younger years before I was a father or a husband and had any level of perspective, but my entire identity was ball player. Mm-hmm. Um, it was all about ball and girls and, and depending on the day, that was the order, <laughs> um, you know, and, but, but had I made that team, I certainly wouldn't have the life I have now. I know that for a fact. So I'm the same way. I'm actually grateful, but extremely grateful that, that that's how it, how it worked out for me. But let's go back to the, the athletes thinking they can be singers and vice versa. And the fact <laughs> that you actually, I mean, you actually did it. Why did you succeed? I tell people all the time, I think the years I spent playing competitive baseball at the level that I, that I played, um, that athlete's mentality, I think is the thing, the driving force that pushed this through because it was 10 years in Southern California playing bars and restaurants before I then moved to Nashville to give up on the artist side of it to go be a songwriter. So it was 12 years in before this whole thing even started for me. I know so many people that give it a couple of years and then go, it's unrealistic. And then they, you know, in quotes, they go get a real job. I think just that kind of drive that you're, that you're taught that competitive nature, that athlete's mentality that you're taught at the level that I played is the thing that wouldn't allow me to quit. You know, I, I had already lost one thing that I love so much. I was determined to make this one work. It plays through, it plays out. It keeps, it keeps playing, you know, then you're, then you're the new kid in town and, it comes with one obstacle after the next. And I think if I didn't, if I wasn't taught to fight for everything and to push through and to, and, you know, never quit and have determined, I think it's an athlete's mentality. And I think, you know, I think that applies to everything in life, but I think in this business, um, it was invaluable. It's amazing to me how many 10 year overnight success stories there are in Nashville. I mean, (laughs) they're, they're just everywhere. Y'all are everywhere. And it takes a very unique patience and willingness to grind that way and be told all of those things by people, man, you, you should just pack it up and go be a gym teacher, pack it up and go back home and do, you know, take over your dad's business. What you ain't going to make it in this town. Mm -hmm. What is the challenge of finding your footing, even above your footing relevance in a town with so much talent everywhere. Every time I fly to Nashville, Brett, there's some old boy sitting on a stool in the damn airport singing his ass off at the airport. Yep. And, 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 and talented and talented guy singing his ass off. Like 100%. I can't imagine that challenge. 
it is the most daunting thing. I mean, honestly, when I said I moved there to pursue songwriting, I did. I didn't. I wasn't even interested in trying to be better than those guys. You're right. You you see that in the airport. Then you go da- walk down Broadway, and oh, there's no. one of those guys on every floor of every three story honky tonk all the way down Broadway. Jason Aldean has a song where he goes, "It's a crazy town full of neon dreams. Everybody plays, everybody sings." That's the truth. Yeah. I mean, for me, the the reason this worked for me is because my, my voice doesn't sound like anyone else's. And that's the reason it wasn't working for me in LA. In LA, that was discouraging because they didn't, you know, executives didn't know what box to fit me in. And in Nashville, it was the, the exact opposite. Nobody sounds like him, it's identifiable, which is crazy to me that two industries and two towns could be that different. But, you know, for me, I was writing songs, trying to pitch them to other artists. And so, you know, when you do that, you got somebody's gotta sing on the demo. So I was singing on the demos we had this little independent company pitching our songs for us. And uh, it turned into all the A&R executives at record labels going, who's the demo singer? And before I knew it, I was in there with my guitar playing for these Awesome. People. That's awesome. What's a great story about, I know you have one, about playing for tips on Broadway. What's, what's <laughs> well, your best story? I don't know. I don't know if this will be the story you're, you're, looking for but i never played a single honky tonk one time wow so you made you legit made it off the demos yep i did so i well i was that that was advice i was given and and i'm glad i listened because i was told that that used to be where artists were discovered and that the tide had changed and now that's where artists go to die and i don't know that that's true but i took it seriously i started getting off broadway and playing in these songwriter rounds instead Mm -hmm. I never once played a legit honky tonk uh, in Nashville. I still haven't done it. Part of me kind of kind of wishes I could have the experience because that's I did the I did the singer songwriter version of that for ten years in L.A. So I kind of feel like I'm missing out on an experience. But at the same time, I think you know there was some level of exclusivity that we that we put behind our project by not doing that. These days, there's so many other outlets to to be heard, whether it's you know YouTube, social media whatever that is too. You've had so much commercial success with your first several singles. Your latest one, Lady, is, is doing so well as well. How does the success that you've had, I mean, I think in case you didn't know, is what, four or five times platinum now? Yeah, I think we're five, almost six now on that one. That's ridiculous. There aren't a whole lot of songs that, that have that kind of, even the most commercially successful songs don't do that. How does that success intersect with whatever your dreams were when you got there? Oh, man, it goes back to, to my, my Major League Baseball aspirations. You know, my goal with this is longevity. My goal was never, you know, I don't, I, don't need to, I don't need to win the awards. I don't even need people to know who I am as long as the music is, is relevant and people are connecting with it. You know, everything that's happened has exceeded any expectation or even goal that I might have had coming into it because all I wanted to do was hang around long enough to make a living doing this. I've probably said this so many times on this podcast and on other platforms at ESPN that, that listeners who are avid of this, this thing get tired of hearing it. But when I'm on with a songwriter, I always feel like it bears repeating that I feel like songwriting is one of those very few professions that can actually save lives. You know, doctors certainly do, paramedics, first responders, all that. But I believe that songwriters can too. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> How have people responded to to the work that you've done with Pen on Paper? You and, and your fellow songwriters, you know, I've known Tyler Ree forever, and I know you wrote 
in case you didn't know with him. And so I just admire the ability to take a story, make it relatable, in a lot of cases, pierce a soul or find a vulnerability within someone else because you're willing to be that vulnerable in all of two minutes and 45 seconds. It's just a masterful craft. I wish I had it. I don't. I'd give anything to have it. How do you, how do you kind of develop and build that? Every songwriter probably has a different story or answer to that, um, I would imagine anyways. Um, for me, that vulnerability that you're talking about, the, I always had that part of it. I always felt like if I wanted people to care about the song, I had to care about the song. And the only way I could genuinely care about the song is if I lived it, if it was, you know, if it was an experience or some version of an experience that I had had in life. And uh, that didn't make my craft any better, but I think it put me in a place to build from. And the big turn for me, cause I did like four independent projects before I got my record deal and I can listen back to them now and, and I can enjoy them, but they all sound the same to me. And I think when, when my craft really started to grow as a songwriter was when I moved to Nashville uh, and started getting in rooms with this, these incredible writers that the town has to offer because you learn, you learn a little something every single time you go into the room with these guys. And as long as you're paying attention, as long as those things sink in, that becomes part of your, part of your skill set for the next time. And, and before you know it, you know, you're saying things, you're talking about things you didn't, you know, you didn't even know about when you first got to town. And, and so I'm on a writer's retreat right now while we're, while we're talking, I hear two of the, two of the most incredible songwriters in our town behind me flushing out ideas right now. I mean, it's, it, it's so easy to be inspired, but if you pay attention, if you really pay attention while you're being inspired, you're also, I think, growing your craft at the same time. Who are you down there with? Is that something uh, that, that you share or not? Oh, know. yeah. that's Their names are going to end up on the record anyway, so it's all good. Um, I am uh, Today, I'm with John Knight and Ashley Gorley. Oh, yeah. I heard an interview with Ashley on a uh, – there's a podcast called And the Writer Is. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and, and that guy interviewed Ashley on that, on that podcast. Um, that's killer. I, I hope that you guys are extremely fruitful on that retreat. It's hard not to be with these guys. Yeah. It's crazy how much talent there is in that town from, you know, Casey Beathard and Luke Laird and David Lee. And I mean, it's just on and on and on and on and on. It's crazy. Back to Lady real quick. I won't keep you much longer. I know you're down there working, but. Uh, no, it's you, all good, man. You know, it's about your sweet little girl and it's about your wife and, and you became a dad last year. How has fatherhood impacted your worldview? I never thought I would be this paranoid of a human being. <laughs> mm -hmm. yep. That's just the truth, man. I, I uh, uh, it probably drives my wife crazy, but it's you feel this crazy, and you know you're a dad, but it, it, this crazy responsibility, this sense of overwhelming need to always keep them safe, even when they're not with you. And I mean, what a weird year for a, a new, new baby to come into the world with everything that's going on too. If I wasn't going to be anxious, I'm definitely 2020 has made me anxious. But me too. Um, it's a, uh, you know, it's, it's been cool though, because it shines a magnifying glass on everything. And so you, you learn, you learn good and bad things about yourself, but both of those are, you know, good learning experiences. You know, I learned, I learned that I'm more patient than I thought I was, which is incredible. Cause if you knew me a year and a half ago, you'd say I was one of the most impatient people you'd ever met, but also you learn little things about yourself, you know, like obviously I was a, an athlete. Now I'm a musician. It lends itself to being like pretty selfish but 
you know, I learned that I'm more selfish than I thought and that I'm not allowed to be anymore, you know, like mm -hmm. things like that, that, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an, it's the best experience in my whole life. Um, I've never, I've never experienced anything like uh, fatherhood. And at the same time, it's a, it's a huge growing experience, but it's, it's been, it's, uh, it's just changed my life. It's been incredible. Yeah. I'm a TV talking head, Brett. I, I know about the learning about how selfish you are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You mentioned how odd the world is with COVID-19 and, and certainly in, in our respective industries, it, it has been an unprecedented thing. You know, you just never thought that something would come along that would completely halt the sports and entertainment landscape. And, and it's really had a devastating impact on Nashville. How have you and, and your crew managed the pandemic halt? It's really hard. I think for me, the most frustrating thing has been, you mentioned my crew, you know, we've got, I think we had 17 guys that were all on payroll. And uh, I've never had a crew, a staff that all relied on me for their livelihood, you know? And so, you know, for me, it's a little bit scary, but I'm a songwriter too, and people are still writing songs. And so if, if you pause the, the road business for a minute, I'll just keep writing songs, but that doesn't provide for the 17 guys that are relying on me, you know? And so that was the hardest thing, you know, it, you know, without going into too much detail, you know, it, it's the same thing with a, with a artist that it is with a small business, you know, we're, we're out there hustling, trying to get that small business loan and trying to keep our guys afloat as long as we can. And it's, it's been weird. It's been, it's been really weird. I'm, I'm so blessed to have the team that I do because they all understood. They were all actually grateful for the couple months we were able to extend it through that small business loan. And it's just, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a weird little uh, like kind of back and forth of jockeying for position to make sure that you just stay afloat long enough that there is such a thing as Brett Young music when this hall kicks back in so that I can bring them all back and we can go back to work. It's, it's a really interesting time. What do you expect it's going to be like when we all can gather, convene, fellowship again? I think initially it's going to be tours will be announced and sell out immediately. My concern is... You know, all these people that have been out of work for this long uh, aren't going to be able to afford to go to concerts anymore, mm -hmm. or at least for a little while. I hope what it is is that, you know, we keep, we, we, we use the phrase new normal all the time with all this. You know, we, we write, we write songs on Zoom instead of getting in the same room. And, you know, we do performances on you know, live streams. And it's it's interesting thing. But I just hope that what there is some sort of new normal where, I don't know that, you know, for example, the NBA figured out a way to still be profitable without putting fans in the seats. You know, there's got to be some version of that for music and for live performances that come out of this. I don't know what it is, but we still need to make money. And also we still need fans there. And if, if, if they got hit by all this, you know, there's got to be some sort of new normal that works for everybody. I don't know what that is, but I, I don't think this looks the same as it did in 2019 when it comes back and gets up and running. It's going to be a little different. And I, I'm looking forward to it. I think, I think as, a, as a community uh, uh, and as a music business, we're going to come together and figure out the right version of that. But I just have no idea what that's going to look like. All right, I'm going to get you out of here on this. Uh, Southern California guy born and raised. Uh, from what I can tell, based on photographic evidence, you're a Dodgers fan. Is this correct? This is absolutely correct. Okay. Uh, what's your opinion of the Houston Astros? <laughs> oh man Here, here's 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 this may not be that interesting of a take but so dodgers my dad was a dodgers fan from when he was nine die hard used to 
used to watch it on TV, but hated the commentator on TV. So turn that off. He'd watch it on TV and listen to it on the radio. Mm-hmm. Like my, like he was, my dad was that guy since he was nine. So I was, I was raised in Orange County and, and, you know, all my friends were Angels fans, but in my house, we were Dodgers fans. So I grew up like a secret, like a closeted Angels fan, but like, if they played the freeway series or the Dodgers played the angels, it was always the Dodgers. So Dodgers first my whole life. Um, and I, I, I have a different take on the whole Astros thing. Like if they obviously cheated, nobody believes them that they didn't do it. They obviously did it. Um, I don't think that you turn around and give the Dodgers the world series, but I do think you take it away from the Astros. But that's my feeling. I don't think you can give it to the Dodgers because the Dodgers didn't. Just because somebody cheated doesn't mean the Dodgers won. Just nobody won that year. That's how I feel. But also, I'm only pissed at them because they're still trying to say they didn't do it. I could get over it right now if they just went, yeah, that was messed up. We shouldn't have done that. But the fact that they're still trying to deny it when we, like, can, like it, there's proof at this point. That's what I'm mad about. Just man up. Say you tried to get a leg up on the competition. Say you know it was the wrong thing, and let's all move past it. But until then, I'm going to have a chip on my shoulder. I can tell. I can sense the <laughs> venom. Uh, all right, what, so, so I have to follow up. What was your opinion or reaction? What was your reaction when Joe Kelly buzzed the tower on Carlos Correa? Man, that's baseball. <laughs> that's be- Listen – it's there are plenty of reasons why pitchers throw at guys. Um, I think the most warranted one though is is retaliation. It's it's been an unwritten thing in baseball forever. In fact, if you're if you're a pitcher and your guy gets one in the middle of the back and you don't give one back that next inning, you got a guy on your team that's mad at you. Yep. It's just it, it is what it is. And guess what? Back to my original point. If you cheat, there's, there's going to be consequences. <laughs> I think – I don't know that there could possibly be a better way to close out the conversation than that. I mean, that's like <laughs> gospel truth right there, brother. <laughs> hey, man, listen. God sees uh, everything. What a tremendous uh, conversation. I appreciate your, you sharing your path with me and, and offering your great perspective. And, and congratulations on all your amazing success. Keep it up. And y'all stay safe, uh, you and your wife and your little girl. and. I hope you and the boys write some uh, write some monsters down there. I appreciate you, brother. This was so much fun and such a breath of fresh air to, to talk about baseball again. Travis, I don't know my favorite part of that interview. It really was, like, captivating. I appreciated his investment in me starting with all the baseball talk because I had known – I had known that he played college baseball. I did not know the level at which he played college baseball. And when we did that first pitch at the Florida-Georgia baseball game that was played last fall during the cocktail party weekend in Jacksonville, I walk into the stadium thinking, all right, man, you're the first pitch. There's 6,000 people here. There's cameras everywhere. And then they, the, 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 the ops guy walks over and he's like, Marty, meet Brett Young. I'm like, hey, man, he's a big guy. I mean, like, he's probably like 6'5", 6'4", 6'5", big old boy. And I'm like, nice. So not only did Tebow say no, they drug Brett out of his bus. So I cannot duff this thing. I have got to throw a laser right now. That's a lot of pressure. It really was a lot of pressure. And I didn't, 
I went in there. I, I was just funny. I was walking out to the mound thinking, man, I should have had a beer before I walked out here. But, man, I stepped up there on the rubber. My biggest concern was the fact that I had on Jordan 5s at the time, and I knew I was going to be standing on dirt. And when I followed through on my pitch, I was going to get them Jays dirty. Did you ask them to put down some, like, uh, no, turf? Uh, nope. Nope. I walked right up on that rubber. And, man, I fired it right in there. And uh, it's funny. I had our social media people at SEC Network were kind enough to accompany me there, and they captured the pitch. And I was so proud of that pitch, I put that thing right on social media immediately. But had there been a batter standing in there, that thing would have been 400 feet the other direction. It would have just Guaranteed. It was BP. It was a BP pitch. My biggest thing, and I was, I was shocked when you asked this, how he made it. He didn't, you know, just go play in those honky-tonks. And I don't want to uh, overstep my bounds and do other people's work or anything, but when we get back to normalcy, whenever that is, they need to call up a bar and say, listen, zero promotion, but Brett Young is going to show up yep. at 8 p.m. or whatever and play for a couple hours. You don't owe him anything. We just ask, don't promote and just let it and let it just happen by mouth that Brett Young's playing at, you name the bar. I think that would be so cool for him to go play at a honky tonk, no promotion, no tickets or anything just like how it would have been at the beginning there's plenty of places on broadway you know from tootsie's which is iconic to jason aldean's bar to old red blake shelton's bar to i think florida georgia line has a bar yeah and all of them have stages in them and so uh that would be fun that is pretty crazy to me too that he never played for tips that that he let the demos do the talking and that that was the advice that he got that's interesting to me too i'm gonna have to ask my other my other buddies in, in country music, if that's kind of what their path was, because, I mean, I've never heard from any of them about playing on Broadway. None of them. No friend I have, unless it was in a song, like Brett mentioned Al Dean's song, Crazy Town. Yeah. Uh, it's in there, and I've heard Chesney, I think, sing about it before and, and whatnot. Oh, that leads me to one line. We'll, 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 we'll wrap it up on this. I was listening. You know who Willie Geist is? I know the name. So he's a reporter, I think, for NBC or somebody, host. And he has a podcast. He does his Sunday conversation idea every Sunday, and he, they turn it into a podcast. And he interviewed Tim McGraw. And I was listening to that on my drive on Monday down to Georgia. And McGraw, how crazy is this? McGraw got off a bus on Broadway at 4 a.m., walked into a bar, sat down with – these two random guys who had written, like they were superstar songwriters who happened to still be in the bar drinking, like guys who knew Keith Whitley, had written for Keith Whitley. And I, I wish I could remember the name. I, uh, I'd love to know the name. But the guy had told McGraw that night, okay, McGraw has gotten off the bus from nowhere, Louisiana, or wherever he's from. I think he's from Louisiana, walks in a bar, sits down with these two dudes, and guess what the guy's telling him about when he gets in the bar? Indian outlaw. And McGraw says, if I get, when I get my record deal, I'm cutting that song. How are you kidding song. me? And then he also told this crazy story. They then go a couple hours later to this guy's house so it's like 7, 8 in the morning, something like that. They go to this guy's house. The guy gets a call 
that Keith Whitley had passed away. So McGraw lands in town, 4 a.m., learns about Indian outlaw, and then a couple hours later learns that Keith Whitley had died. That's Within four hours of stepping off that bus. That's a crazy morning. I mean, I'd love to interview McGraw. We too small time for him to do our show, but I also love how sweet if we could get him. While we're interviewing Brett, you can hear them still working there because he's he's at a writer's retreat right now. I would love to just be sitting in on one of those and just watching these people that are just the best of the best working on their craft. And you could you could hear music and sound back there while he's doing this interview. Like they're just constantly working and trying to come up with new hits. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, on and on and on. If you look at, if you go look up Ashley Gorley's songs, that's who he said he was down there with. He's one of the premier songwriters in town. Uh, he's around my age, I think. In 2018, he was the ASCAP Songwriter of the Year. In 2017, he was the ASCAP Songwriter of the Year. In 16, in 15, in 14, in 13, he was the Billboard Country Songwriter of the Year. So I he, mean, can kind of, he can kind of write songs is what you're saying? It's, it's stupid. He wrote uh, Up Down for Morgan Wallen. Y'all know that song? It was a number one in recent years. He wrote Downtown's Dead for Sam Hunt. He wrote Sunrise, Sunburn, Sunset for Luke Bryan. He wrote Body Like a Back Road for Sam Hunt. He wrote Middle of a Memory for Cole Swindell. I mean, it's he, one of Laney and my favorite songs on our drinking mix is Setting the World on Fire with Kenny Chesney and Pink. He wrote that. He wrote A Little More Summertime for Al Dean. I mean, it just on and on and on and on and on. The, the guy is just a total beast. He writes a lot with Sam Hunt, which I think is so cool. He wrote House Party. I love Cop Car, which Keith Urban made a hit. I like – I mean, no offense to Keith, but I like Sam's version of Cop Car a little better. And, of course, he's co-writing a lot of that with Sam. Well, Sam's a, people, a really good writer, too. Some people don't realize is um, the songwriters, but also how many of the actual artists cut songs for other artists. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, and you know, when I the, the thing about that you need to understand about Nashville is Ashley's not writing those songs by himself. He's just one of the minds behind it. And it's like, I mean, he wrote – for, he wrote Confession for FGL, which was a monster, monster hit. In fact, I'm pretty sure it was a number one. I'm, I'm almost positive it was a number one. Uh, you know, he, I told you he wrote Cop Car. Keith cut that. It went top ten. It's just on and on. And I just admire it so much. And those guys have cool lives, man. Like, I'm envious in some ways. I don't get terribly envious of people's lives because mine's so blessed, but I love that they can take their craft, they can create something that's so transcendent and so meaningful to so many millions of people and have anonymity in public. That would be. I didn't think about that. Like, they can just – they can walk down Broadway. Nobody knows who they And that you could hear somebody covering a song they wrote, go in there and sit there and listen to it, and nobody has, has any idea who they are. I've had that very conversation in the past with both Luke Laird, who wrote – I mean, if you know anything about Nashville songwriting, Luke's a monster. He wrote tons of Carrie Underwood's hits, and he's written for everybody. Hell, he just wrote with Snoop. It's probably easier to name the people he hasn't worked yeah. with. And, and Casey Beathard, too. Uh, I've, I've had that same conversation with Casey. 
Uh, but anyway, all right, that's enough. We've taken up too much time already. Thank you guys so much for tuning in, and, and thanks so much to Brett for his time, especially especially when he's in the middle of being in a creative headspace where he's trying to create the next great, next great sound in Nashville. So thank you to him so much. Thanks so much to our law enforcement officials working hard to keep our community safe. We appreciate our first responders, firemen, running into the fire and risking their own lives to save others. Appreciate our military so much, uh, sacrificing so much on our behalf to keep our country free. Y'all, let's do our best to try to see the world through one another's eyes, and let's let kindness be our compass. Thank you so much. Have an awesome week. It's Marty Smith's America. Y'all be good. Take care.